Udham dhammang sangkang namasam. In a talk that I gave last weekend, I mentioned how it's useful to prepare ourselves to meet feelings of frustration in a non-judgmental way. If we're not prepared, then when we're feeling frustrated or irritated, we can miss a valuable opportunity. And in speaking about handling, learning to handle frustration constructively, I hope that I, I didn't give the wrong impression. Um, that is that if you're not feeling frustrated, if you're not struggling, then you're not practicing. Um, there are some characters who do operate on that basis and, and not just um, confused modern Western people. It's uh, from the time of the Buddha. And, in the Dhammachaka Bhavatana Sutta that we, just, we chanted last night, there was the Buddha's talking about the extreme of indulging in self-mortification, atakilamantana yoko, and, and this tendency to somehow feel that it's virtuous to be giving ourselves a hard time. And so that's certainly not what I was um, trying to communicate. And to be holding to the view that you have to be suffering to be practicing properly would be that would be idealistic and and, and certainly unskillful and throw us even more out of balance. And that's not to say again, that's not to say that ideals and ideas don't have their place. Certainly they do. Ideals are like guiding principles and, and without guiding principles we could be seriously lost and as with frustration, the way we relate to the principles determines whether it's constructive or not. Um, having helpful ideas and helpful ideals and can certainly bring benefit. Clinging to them, as I'm saying, is that would be idealistic and once again throw us more out of balance. And I'm rather fond of a illustration that, if I remember correctly, Ajahn Sumato. Uh, shared with us many, many years ago now where he was talking about how you, you're out sailing across the ocean and you're navigating, you look at the stars to get your bearings. However, you're not expecting to reach the stars. The stars help you get your, your bearings. And, and if we're not careful and we're fixated on looking at the stars all the time, well then we can end up in big trouble. So it's not just the ideals that matter, it's also the prevailing conditions. So ideals are like, like principles, but then there's application or practice. Ideals certainly have their place. How do we apply the ideals? You know, if you're sailing across an ocean and all you're doing is looking at the stars and not paying attention to the prevailing winds or, or the prevailing currents, then you could end up in big trouble. So paying attention to the prevailing conditions that we find ourselves in 
yes, establishing ourselves with a clear understanding of true principles, though we don't cling to those principles. If we do, then we're misusing those principles. I gave an illustration last year, last week of, of a situation at Wat Wapong when Ajahn Chah was still there. Well, there was another situation there where there was this um, rather skinny and unhappy-looking Westerner sitting there at the mealtime beside his bowl, and Ajahn Chah was walking down the line, and, and he noticed how little food this monk had in his bowl. And the way of eating the meal in the northeast of Thailand is you... You get the sticky rice and you form a great big lump of sticky rice and you, you, you pull a piece off and you dab it into your curry and that's how you eat. And this monk had a very, very small lump of sticky rice and as Ajahn Chah was walking down the line and he saw it and he, he indicated you should, you should eat more, eat more. Um, now from the perspective of principles, you say, what's Ajahn Chah doing? Because there's... There's this uh, ethos at Wapapong, uh, eat little, sleep little, speak little. It's, it's even painted up on a poster and pinned to a tree in the monastery. Eat little, sleep little, speak little. And what's Ajahn Chah doing telling this young monk to eat more? And the next thing we're telling him to speak more and sleep more. Well, maybe he would because this young fellow was out of balance in a different way from some of the other monks. Probably it's safe to say that the majority of monks do eat too much and speak too much and sleep too much. And this fellow was out of balance in the other direction, so paying attention to prevailing conditions, Ajahn Chah said, no, no, you've got to eat more. And so, and so how we relate to principles uh, matters. And if we cling to them, then even if the principles are true, we can go out of balance. And also in that talk of last weekend, I spoke about how it might be more useful if we want a barometer for our progress in practice that instead of asking how peaceful am I, asking how capable am I of tolerating tension Again, on the theme of learning to meet frustration in a constructive way. How to handle pressure skillfully. As we all know, the big emphasis in the Buddha's teachings on mindfulness of suffering leads to freedom from suffering. Well, if we're paying attention to suffering, well, I think it's fair enough to expect that there's going to be a build-up of pressure. And... What I'm saying is that that's functional. That's, it's supposed to be that way. And once again, not clinging to it and making a fixed position out of it. The Buddha also spoke the praise of, of learning to uh, develop tranquility and contentment and ease. However, when we do feel ourselves in the midst of a dilemma, what do we do with it? Can we engage it in a constructive way or do we just judge it as wrong saying it shouldn't be this way I think if that's all Buddhism was teaching us was another way of just becoming peaceful and then ending up judging life's difficulties as something going wrong that would be really missing a valuable opportunity 
And the Buddha's teachings are very skillful in this regard and showing us how to meet life as it is. Yes, when there's joy, how to meet the joy without getting lost in it. When there's difficulty, when there's challenge, when there's frustration, when there's a dilemma, how do we meet that without turning it into a problem? And it is indeed part of our, just like the idea of dilemmas or constructive paradox, it is part of our training. Like, for instance, with the way we are taught meditation. We're taught about we're supposed to develop samatha, and then at the same time also we're supposed to be developing vipassana. What do you do with that? Well, samatha is about making the mind peaceful. Isn't that, isn't that what samatha is? It's how to steady attention, how to discipline attention to be still. And vipassana, that's investigating. Well, how do those two things work together? They sound like they're completely different. There was a... Actually, she went on to become a, a nun, Sister Rochner eventually, but I think at the time she was visiting Ajahn Chah, she was still a laywoman, Pat Stoll was her name, and she asked Ajahn Chah a question related to this once, and she said that she'd heard the Buddha's teachings on anatta and she was confused because if you're investigating anatta or not-self, then what about this other aspect of the teachings like developing samadhi? How can you develop, be developing samadhi or samatha if there's no self? And Ajahn Chah's reply was, well, when you're developing samatha, you're working with self. When you're developing vipassana, or insight meditation, you're working with not-self. And when you know what's what, then you're beyond both self and not-self. Well, that's interesting. What's that all about? It's similar in the way that in the monastery we, we're trained to keep all these rules. At least the monks have an initial 227 rules. That's just to start off with, and there's, there's plenty more as well. And, and if I remember correctly, Ajahn Chah was talking to Ajahn Sumato about this once and, and, and saying how the Vinaya or the, the code of discipline, it is about holding firmly to the rules, to the trading, training standards, really holding firmly, observing these rules. And the Dhamma is about letting go. So, and, and regularly in the, in the teachings, it, well, the Buddha taught Dhamma Vinaya, he taught the discipline of the Vinaya and, and the training of Dhamma for learning how to let go of all habits of clinging. How do they work together? Well, again, on this occasion, Ajahn Chah talking to Ajahn Samadhi says, well, when you understand this, then you'll be okay. Related to this, you can see in society how just recently with the passing of Her Majesty Queen Elizabeth and and then the new king, Prince, uh, king, Prince Charles, becoming King Charles III. And uh, apparently what happened was as soon as Her Late Majesty passed away, uh, Prince Charles immediately became King Charles. And however, that wasn't settled until Parliament met and endorsed his taking on the, mon the position as, as king. And so you have, again, you have this, this tension between the monarchy, which is all about hereditary, and the 
there's a stability and a, and a unity that the monarchy gives. Everybody's equal in their relationship to the monarch. That's certainly not the case with, with parliament. It's, that's democratic, it's voted. A large part of the population are for and a large part are against. And they keep changing off. And how many prime ministers has the UK had in the last few years? There's very little stability on the level of parliament. And there's lots of stability on the level of the monarchy. Having an absolute monarchy, well, that would be highly risky. However, in the United Kingdom, there's this constitutional monarchy, which is different. And it exists in a state of tension with parliament. Some people might say, oh, we've got to get rid of the monarchy. Well, this, this state of tension can be viewed quite constructively. It can be a source of energy. And we need energy for practice. It's, again, it would be a mistake, I would suggest, to be overly focused on using meditation and the spiritual exercises to just be becoming peaceful. Become overly peaceful, and then when when we're faced with one of life's challenges, we're not equipped to deal with it. All deluded personalities are faced with challenges, with the fundamental, deep, existential challenge of thinking that we're special. All deluded personalities think that they're special. All of us. Especially fortunate or especially unfortunate. Especially impressive or especially burdened or especially sensitive. All deluded personalities think that they're special. And how do we evolve out of that very limited state of believing that we're special. Well, it takes energy. It takes a lot of energy. It's not just, we can't just read a book and think our way out of this dilemma. I'm so special, I'm not going to be special. Tie ourselves up in knots. And it's not just powerful business tycoons or politicians who get lost in the perception of being special. Also, Buddhist meditators and certainly can get lost in that. Towards the end of my time in Thailand, around I think perhaps it was 1978-79, I can remember translating for, I'm not sure if it was a young monk or a young novice at the time. Anyway, a young fellow who was very enthusiastic about his practice and his grasp of Thai was, was fairly initial and so I, I was uh, translating for him and talking to Ajahn Chah and, and this young fellow was explaining how he wanted to take on all these various ascetic practices, all these Dutanga Wata that, that, um, you know, for the period of the rains retreat. So he was explaining to Ajahn Chah that he wanted to do this practice and that practice. And, and um, Ajahn Chah, well, I can't remember the details now, but presumably he listened. And, and at the end of the conversation, he 
suggested that this young novice or this young monk, in fact, don't do all of those practices. He said, what I recommend is you just take on one determination, make one vow for the range retreat, and that is to keep practicing whatever happens. Well, by comparison to all these impressive, heroic other goals that this fellow was setting up for himself, it doesn't sound very special. But then maybe following our impulse to be special is, is not necessarily particularly helpful. Who is it that wants to be special? Even if we're, we feel we're specially obstructed with all our problems. So evolving out of the perception that we're special in any regards, as I said, takes energy. And if we learn how to meet life's frustrations or the dilemmas that we encounter in life in a constructive way, then those situations can be generating the energy that we need to burn away the habits of misidentification with the conditioned personality. If it's the case that we are holding on too tightly, then sooner or later we're going to suffer. And the trick, the skill, is how to be prepared enough so that when the evidence is there and we see that we're suffering, that we're there for it. If we haven't prepared ourselves properly, then there's a very real risk that as soon as we start suffering that we, we judge the situation. So it shouldn't be this way. Actually, in practice, if we catch ourselves wanting to be special, want to be seen as special, that's great, that's good. If we catch ourselves wanting to be seen as special, that's a good, that's a good sign. The, the real difficulty is where we don't know that we think we're special. There's a Dhammapada verse that some of you might be familiar with, or two Dhammapada verses, verse 11 and verse 12, which is, mistaking the false for the real and the real for the false, you live a life of falsity. Seeing the false as the false and the real as the real, you live in the perfectly real. So, if we, as all do, deluded personalities do, uh, indulge in wanting to be special, want to be seen to be special, and we don't know it, that's unfortunate. So if in our practice we get to the point where we catch ourselves wanting to be special and want to be seen as special, we can feel good about that. That's helpful. It might be humiliating. However, that's just something to receive. If we resist the humiliation, if we judge it, well, we're lost again. If the, if the compulsive judging disorder kicks in and, and, oh, I shouldn't be wanting to be special, I think, well, we're spoiled. Actually, it takes a lot of work to be expanded enough in our awareness and to have enough clarity and presence to be able to own up to the fact that I like to be seen as special. I think of myself as special. It takes work. It's, uh, so let's not spoil it by then falling into judging. And instead of wanting to be special, maybe we could exercise modesty. Like, if, for instance, if you go on a meditation retreat and you have a good experience and you benefit from being on the retreat and 
and then you leave the retreat and think, oh, I'm going to, I'm going to meditate for two hours every day, yeah. an hour every morning, an hour every evening, and, and if I'm serious about meditation, I'm going to have to keep this routine. And Well, my encouragement would be maybe one hour a day, maybe, maybe even 40 minutes. Actually, my encouragement for people who are starting off with meditation is 20 minutes a day, and then only six days a week. The idea that I've got to do two hours meditation every day, not sure where that's coming from. It's generally better to err on the side of doing less and keeping it constant. And some people might balk at the idea of my encouraging you to meditate less. However, I've seen people over the years trying far too hard and tying themselves up in terrible knots and then feeling disappointed. Some, quite a few actually, giving up and ending up very confused. And so wanting to be special and not really owning up to it, not really acknowledging it, that's regrettable. And if we, instead of following such impulses and we expand our awareness and make the effort to meet ourselves where we're at, own up to the stories that we're telling ourselves, meeting the dilemmas and the frustrations that life gives us in a welcoming way, literally, when you're feeling fed up, frustrated and caught in some dilemma, you know, put your hands together in Anjali and say, welcome, welcome, please teach me what I need to learn. If the Buddha was faced with a dilemma, do you think he's saying, oh, it shouldn't be this way? Or our teachers, do you think our teachers would say it shouldn't be this way? No, they wouldn't. Why not? Because their habits of clinging are not the same as ours. We have these habits of clinging, of constricting awareness, and it manifests in our minds. It starts in our guts, in our hearts, and then if we don't catch it there, then it goes up into our head and the next we say, it shouldn't be this way. I shouldn't be this way. They shouldn't be this way. Life shouldn't be this way. When, of course, all along, it is this way, always was and never shall be this way, what are we doing that turns life into a problem? Well, that's the question. And as we start to see what we're doing in the moment that we're doing it, well then, a little humility is likely to emerge. So once again, if we take this teaching seriously and we stop just trying to be peaceful and rather be interested in increasing our capacity to tolerate frustration, to tolerate disappointment without collapsing and saying it shouldn't be this way, to expand our awareness and say, yes, this is what sadness feels like, this is what disappointment feels like, to really, as again, as I've said before, take a deep breath physically to remind ourselves, you know, open, meet this intensity that life, life has given us. Meet it with openness, with softness, with commitment, and with vulnerability. And here we're talking about skillful vulnerability, not naive vulnerability.
Thank you very much this evening for your attention.